Joel Bradley, who became our first manager. He was really very good. He instilled in us four things. I remember I went to see him on his deathbed. I said to him, what was your secret back in the day? He said, there are four things I tried to instill in you young kids, because we're just like 13, 14. He said to get there early, do a good gig, get the money. I love that one, get the money right, and get home safe. And, and that's what we always did, and we try to do anyway. I'm Peter McCulley. Paul Rogers of the band's Free, Bad Company, and The Firm has had a hand in over 30 albums and sold over 100 million copies. Now living in B.C., he's brought his story and a single from his new album, his first in nearly 25 years, to the podcast. Paul Rogers is on this edition of Today in B.C. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Paul. Oh, thanks, Peter. Thank you very much. I was really looking forward to chatting you up today. Your brand of rock and roll, what you represent musically, is likely the reason that I turned out the way I did. It's not all bad. <laughs> You're holding me responsible. Oh, good. How did you get started in the music business growing up in England? When I was about 13, my papa, my old man, my father bought me a guitar and he just turned up with it and handed it to me. And there you are, son. He could see some kind of musical inclination in me because I used to dance to the radio and stuff when I was a kid. That was the first guitar, and um, I can't even remember the name of it, to be honest. But I sold it and used the money to buy a bass guitar, and that made me eligible for the class band, which was a bunch of kids with guitars, and all you had to do really was own a guitar. You didn't have to be able to play it. We couldn't play. So we were in Mick Bodie's kitchen playing, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning and all that stuff, you know. I mean, anything, we'd just play. We must have driven their parents mad. But eventually we did start to formulate and different members came and left. And eventually there was like four of us that, that were actually playing songs. And I remember one day, and we didn't really think we were a band or anything, but we were very much Beatles fans, right? And so I remember one day a very nosy neighbor popped her head in and said, give us a song. So we played something. From that moment on, we got serious about it. We joined up with Colin Bradley who was a guitarist in the class that, that actually sang and did gigs, which was a step forward for us. We joined him. I played the bass. He played guitar. He was the lead singer. And Mick Moody was the guitar player. Then we had Bruce Thomas on the bass. We went to London and we promptly starved, to be honest, because we couldn't get any gigs. And then we split up and went our different ways. And I decided I was going to get a band together, playing blues. I called that band Brown Sugar blues band and we were playing in a pub then and a guy called Paul Kossoff came up to the front of the stage in our break between sets and said I'd like to get up and jam with you guys I said okay let's go and so we did I said to Koss you know we have to get a band together that's what we have to do and he said you could join my band we're looking for a singer I said no I don't want to join a band I want to form a new band along the lines of Jimi Hendrix and basically that's what we did that was the band free that became free Koss and I were driving around London together. He had a many. We used to drive around London and terrorize the place. We both had very long hair. He said to me, there's a drummer with the black cat bones called Simon Kirk. And I think he'll leave and he can come with us. All we need now is a bass player. I saw like a little advertisement, bass player looking for a gig. It was Andy Fraser. And so we all got together. That's four of us, Simon Kirk, Andy Fraser, Paul Kossoff, myself. 
Your third album had the single All Right Now, which was a massive hit. That song's been entered in the One Million Airplays single club. I can remember being in traffic in downtown Vancouver on a Friday afternoon and hearing it come out of vehicle windows for what seems like blocks. You hear it resonate down the street. It was a, it was an anthem for the times. It was an amazing success. They took us completely by surprise as well. I remember one guy I met said, oh, I was in jail when I first heard that. 1970 went all right now was a huge hit. You played at the Isle of Wight Music Festival. Mm -hmm. Now for folks who aren't familiar with that, the audience for that particular year was 600,000 people. That's more people than showed up at Woodstock. Is it really? 500 and some thousand were estimated for Woodstock. Wow, I didn't know that figure. We've always thought of the Isle of Wight Festival as Britain's answer to Woodstock in a way. Paul, what's it like to look out from the stage at 600,000 people? It was the biggest audience I'd ever played for. We'd up to that point we had just been doing nightclubs and that sort of thing and maybe concert halls and we were moving into concert halls but Chris Blackwell our, I guess he wasn't our real manager he was the head of Island Records but he was doing a bit of managing for us as well anyway he actually decided to film it and make the video of it that's why we have that footage because people weren't really filming shows so much then I got on stage and I found that there was like two mics stuck together and I thought the heck is this? Because one was recording and the other was like going out into the audience. Actually, the the first group of audience in the front row was like a hundred people back of that. Like they were spent the whole time with their heads down writing. And we actually thought we hadn't gone down very well because we thought, I don't know, they're on this, they're doing something else. But it turned out they were all reporters and they all were like loving the show and writing it as it happened. It was a great success. It was lovely. That was the old days before they had computers and phones and all the rest yeah. of it. Now they would have just yeah. tweeted it or something. I read somewhere that when you were with the band Free, you had performed over 700 concerts in six years. That's a lot of time on the road. You must have been to some interesting places, but probably dog-tired along the way. I think that's true to say. We didn't think it was that many shows, we were like, we'd, we uh, we sent the equipment in a transit wagon. They took the gear and we drove in a little car and Koss drove it actually. He did all the driving for the band because we didn't have licenses. We weren't old enough for wedding, taking the test. We'd drive up to Glasgow or Edinburgh and up north and do shows like that. And then we'd come back down and back home. And that was our life really. In 1973, you started a new band, a super group. Bad Company. There was a couple of hits that'll be with us always, Paul. Can't Get Enough of Your Love was one. Feel Like Making Love. That was my favorite. It just went from zero to 60 and back again. It was really the ultimate rock ballad of the time. Thank you. We didn't really think we were a super band, but it just so happened that Kirky and I had come from Free. Mick Rouse had come from Martha Hoople. And Boswell had happened to come from King Crimson. Although he hadn't spent much time with King Crimson, but they made a big deal of that. That was how we were a super group, if you like. But we were a good band, I do believe. Fantastic group. And the third band that you put together was The Firm. Some guy named Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin showed up to play guitar with you. How did that grouping happen? With Bad Company, we were managed by Peter Grant, who was the manager of Led Zeppelin. We would often see the Zeppelin guys in the office when we went in. They were incredibly nice to us, actually, I've got to say, because they were such huge superstars. 
and it was very good to us. And they backed us actually in many ways and actually introduced us to the American market, which was really great. Jimmy was very much part of the success really of Bad Company. And I always thought, man, if you ever need a favor, I'm there for you. What happened was John Bonham had died very tragically and we all miss him even today. And the group just stopped right there. They just could not go on with the death of John. Jimmy wouldn't even play guitar for a couple of years. So he, he called me and because I was making a solo album at that time, I'd put a studio in my house in Surrey, just outside of London. We started writing songs, basically, to cut a long story short. And then somebody called us from the Arms Tour people, which was a, a multiple sclerosis charity, really, to get money to help people who suffered from that, particularly Ronnie Lane, bass player from the Small Faces, who was suffering from multiple sclerosis. And I did not want to go onto the road at that point. Jimmy was very gung-ho to go on the road. You get a band together and do the whole thing. And I said, I've just stepped back from that with Bad Company, so I don't really want to go back out on the road just now. But it had been five or six years, and we got talked into joining the Arms Tour, which was very good for us. And we formed the firm after that. You mentioned the Small Faces. Wasn't that Rod Stewart's band? Eventually it was. Originally it was Steve Marriott who was singing with the Small Faces. We toured with them. They were great. They were fantastic. They were so great. They were originally a blues band. And they developed into like a commercial band, bless them. And they were great. We toured those three. There was Joe Cocker. There was Arthur Brown, the god of hellfire. I don't even remember him. He used to wear fire on his head. And there was a small face and the Who, actually. God, how could I forget the Who? I didn't. <laughs> they were amazing. What an amazing tour, right? We were just touring around England. Queen with Freddie Mercury had a knack of playing those huge stages like Live Aid. And after Freddie Mercury mm. passed away, you and Queen went out on the road as Queen plus Paul Rogers. That was a great catalog, a world tour, yeah. a, an album or two, I think. To be honest, we were only going to tour four or five dates for fun. That's what the original plan was. But it turned into four years and two world tours and a bunch of live albums, which were great, and a studio album too. So it was quite good. Queen plus Paul Rogers played live in the Ukraine 15 years ago as a fundraiser. And now Ukraine is back in the news in 2023. Do you have any thoughts on that? We played at Kharkov, which is the big square. Apparently can be seen from the moon. Right opposite the stage, which was a huge stage, huge lights with a huge thrust, 350,000 people showed up for that. Right opposite the stage, there was the old KGB building. And but you thought it was over at that point. You were standing on the stage, you thought, that's all over. But apparently it isn't. And looking at Ukraine right now, the show was for benefit for AIDS. But the crowd was fantastic. They knew every note of every breath that Freddie ever took. They were there with me. It was just beautiful. When Today in BC continues, Paul Rogers talks about recording his new album in British Columbia. We'll listen to a cut from the album Midnight Rose when Today in BC continues. Get fast access to breaking news by signing up now to Black Press Media's free newsletters and stay informed with all the latest news delivered directly to your inbox. You'll have access on any device, so you never have to miss out again on the information you need to know. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. 
Paul, Midnight Rose is your first album of original music in 25 years. What was the catalyst for writing the songs and recording the album? When we came to the end of the world, when COVID hit, everything came to a screeching halt and everyone was on lockdown, right? So I ended up being at home, sitting with an acoustic guitar, and I thought, I'll just, I'll go back over my songs that I've got and ideas and work them up and see what I've got. And eventually I thought, I wonder if I could just get into a studio somewhere locally with some local guys that really play well and see what we could come up with. What happened was that Todd Ronning, my bass player in my solo band, had sent me a demo and asked me to write lyrics for it, which turned into living it up. And I said to him, that's a really great track. Where did you record that? And he said, right next door to where you are in BC. So the album was recorded in British Columbia and all BC musicians were on the record? Pretty much. Not every single one, but pretty much. The album's on the Sun Records label, which has some history. How does it feel to be recording on the label of Elvis, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, just to name a few? It's absolutely incredible. We had some business with the catalog and that sort of thing. And they said to me, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm just in the studio with these guys. And they said, let us know. You send us something. We are very interested. And so we did and we got together. Lo and behold, it's out on Sun Records, which is amazing. Really amazing, actually. And the album was co-produced by your wife, Cynthia. Many of us remember from her days on TV as Cynthia Kerlock. How did you two meet? The Queen of Canada. Yes. Does that make me the king? No, I don't think so. We have mutual friends, actually, called Linda Skinnett, who are my brothers in rock, I've got to tell you. I was touring with them in 97, I think it was. And they kept saying, now, when we get to Canada, we are going to meet Cynthia, okay? And I was like, okay. And they said, but you got to behave yourself, okay? I'm like, hey, okay, I'll behave myself. <laughs> so when we got Vancouver Pacific Coliseum, we played there. I met Cynthia, finally. They were right. We hit it off nobody's business. And 26 years later, I thought she, was, she had a good ear, actually two of them. And I always thought that. But when she started to give me ideas for the album, I thought, wow, she really knows what she's talking about. So we put the bed tracks down in Ray's place. And then I said, I'm not quite sure where to go with this. And she said, why don't I make a few calls, which she did. And she she got Bob Rock interested and Randy Staub, who he works together with, Chuck Lavelle, Jimmy Mattingly. Chuck Lavelle is the musical director and he's been with the Rolling Stones for 40 years. He was previously with the Allman Brothers. And he's such a great guy. Yeah. And Jimmy Mattingly, he's with Garth Brooks. Um, yes. Colin James, saxophone player. player, John yeah. Fierro came yeah. on board. Chris Jester and a guy out of Vancouver that's a keyboard player extraordinaire. But also Keith Scott as well oh, yeah. from Brian Adams. We were in Brian's studio. And I love Brian. He's a great guy too. So it was altogether very professional. And you worked with Brian back in 1991 when you were doing the album called The Law. That's right. Yes, indeed. Paul, tell us about the single Take Love from the album Midnight Rose. We saw this cat, a beautiful kitty. She was a Persian kitty and she was very proud, ever so proud. And she wouldn't let us pet and stroke and love her. So I heard Cynthia say, Shode, I can't love you if you keep running away. I'm sitting there with my guitar and I thought, just a minute, that's a good idea for a song. And I worked on that from there. She was a rescue from the SPCA in Surrey when we agreed to foster her and then we eventually adopted her. Nobody wanted her. She loved Elvis. 
when we would play music, she would sit in the living room by the speakers. But when we put Elvis on, she would go towards the speakers and sit right in front of the speakers. So we assumed that her former owner who had passed was an Elvis fan. It was very wild as well. I was out on the road and I was calling home and Cynthia said to me, I've got this incredible cat. I have to keep her locked up in the bedroom upstairs. She's crazy. She's nuts. When I came back, I said, show me this cat. So she put oven mitts on, right? Oven mitts. <laughs> oh, and I had a, I held a pillow in front of me, yeah. goggles, because she would fly at me. She was so fearful. She turned into the most beautiful oh, cat. Yeah. And we do love her. There's a picture of her in the CD jacket. People will see a picture of Miss yes. Sheridan.
Paul, I saw you were touring with Jeff Beck and Ann Wilson and Deborah Bonham just before the pandemic in 2018, 2019. Deborah's brother, John, was the drummer for Led Zeppelin. And then a few years later, Ann Wilson and Hart show up with John's son, Jason, on the drums at the Kennedy Center Honors for Led Zeppelin and played Stairway to Heaven. The music community seems to be fairly tight-knit at times. Is that the case? It is. And there's a lot of respect between musicians. I think if you're all in the same situation or a similar situation, there's definitely a connection between all musicians. I mean, Jeff Beck, I always liked to play with Jeff Beck because he was my number one guitarist for a long time. But I I love so many guitarists. There's Paul Kossoff, obviously. There is Jimmy Page. There's so many, Brian May. Mick Rouse, God, forgetting Mick, so many great guitarists. There's a feeling, and you hear their music, and same with me with Queen, you know, I used to hear their music on the radio, and I never for a second thought I would be singing their songs. There is a connection because you hear whatever it is you hear, and just the same as anyone else, and you love it. Paul, you and Cynthia have a place in the Okanagan. I hope you've been able to stay safe during the wildfire season. Yes, we're still not out of the woods yet. Because we've been burning, there's been a lot of smoke here. It's been really terrible. It's really nice to see how the community has come together. Yes. We actually took in a family of evacuees because mm-hmm. they had pets and couldn't find a place to stay. And they were in a tent with two cats and their yeah. daughter. So they stayed with us for about two and a half weeks. Luckily, their house did not burn down. They were able to go back to their home. So that was a blessing. But yeah. the whole community has come together. We've taken in animals in the past evacuees but it's not fun it's really hard on everyone's breathing and it's hard on everyone's mental psyche paul rogers singer songwriter and cynthia rogers have been our guests on this edition of today in bc if you have suggestions or comments send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca you may be part of our podcast mailbag segment you'll find today in bc podcasts on itunes spotify amazon iheart youtube and google podcasts Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com.